Welcome to Engage Arizona. Public policy affects all of our lives, often in very profound ways. One of Center for Arizona Policy's main objectives is to inform and educate Arizonans about what's going on at the state capitol and in local governments that impact their lives. If you care about the preborn and their mothers, your rights as a parent, what freedoms are at risk, or how new laws touch your family, we're talking about it. And we invite you to join us as we discuss the latest developments you are not likely to learn from local and national news. Join us now as we unpack the week's developments in Arizona public policy. Welcome to Engage Arizona. I'm Cindy Dahlgren. We're trying something new here today in light of the fact that there is so much going on at the state capitol, as well as in Washington, D.C., so much that impacts our daily lives. Instead of having an outside guest, I have with me CAP President Kathy Harrod and Vice President of Policy Lisa Brugg. We're going to talk policy. Now, if that makes your eyes glaze over, consider for a minute just how much public policy affects your life. Do you go to church? Do your kids go to school? Are you pro-life? Do you own a business? I could go on, but public policy directly affects how or even if you can do those things according to your own choices. And this is becoming more apparent as culture and policy are changing so swiftly. First, though, Lisa, you are new to CAP, fairly new to CAP. So uh, tell us a little bit about, just briefly, a little bit about your background. Well, I'm very happy to be with CAP. Thank you so much. Um, like you said, I'm Lisa Brugg. And um, I checked the other day, and I have been in policy in some form or another for 23 years. And it's amazing how quickly time goes by. I was actually shocked at that. <laughs> but um, since we have so many great things to talk about, I'll just briefly give a background. I started out in journalism and moved quickly to public policy in the California capital back in 1997. And um, throughout the years, I've worked in public and private um, policy and public affairs and on one level or another. Um, I've also worked on campaigns, a lot of political campaigns from the local level all the way up to the U.S. Senate level. Um, I was brought to Arizona by Governor Brewer. I was her energy policy advisor and the director of the policy, uh, excuse me, the governor's office of energy policy. And when she turned out, I went to ASU and I was doing some public affairs work for them until I met with Kathy and now I'm here and I'm glad. And I'll say the biggest reason I'm glad is because these issues that we care about and we work on are what I started my career in. So it's really nice. I feel like I'm home. So. Great. Well, welcome. Thank you. And everyone knows Kathy Harrod, president of Center for Arizona Policy for forever. <laughs> Seems <laughs> <And> like that. <laughs> probably the most plugged in Arizonan at the state capitol. So, uh, and my background is in communications uh, one way or another. So let's start with one of the biggest developments this week, and that is the passage of Senate Bill 1457 out of committee. It already passed out of the Senate. Now it's in the House. We've talked a little bit about this in the past, but it's a pretty all-encompassing bill. So let's talk a little bit about that. Well, let me say we are very blessed to have Lisa with us. And so that's been one of the highlights of the year, certainly to have Lisa join our team. Um, it really um, increases our capacity and our ability and our leadership. So really um, excited to see what God's doing at CAP with bringing, bringing us people like Lisa. Now, 1457 is a bill that is really designed to um, to solve problems, to fix gaps that are in Arizona's pro-life law. When we stop and think about what what's going on in the abortion area that we need to address, it's quite horrifying. Uh, 1457, the the two key areas that we keep focusing on, 
no more abortions because of genetic abnormalities. So the the notion that children with Down syndrome that are being aborted simply because they have Down syndrome, that would not be possible under this bill. Four states have these kind of bans in effect. We want Arizona to be that kind of state that we say no. We don't discriminate against children that are adults that are born that have disabilities. So why should we discriminate against unborn children because of the disability that they have? And so this would ensure that and protect those children from being aborted simply because of the disability that they have. So that's a really key issue. And, of course, the other one that we're very concerned about is what happens with chemical abortions or medication abortions, and the bill addresses that as well. Yeah, it stops uh, or it makes sure that they cannot send the abortion pill through the mail. And, of course, the problem with that is that if you if you do that, you circumvent all those safety precautions and um, and there's no there's no uh, doctor's visit. So the importance of that is that there's there are some things you need to be aware of. Well, and if there's ever any doubt in anyone that the abortion industry is not about making money or about peddling abortion, this bill shows it. I mean, or what they're doing, the idea that abortion pills would be sent through the mail and you're supposed to take them within the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. So how many women even know the stage of their pregnancy? And then if it's an ectopic pregnancy or the RH issue, you know, you're not going to be cared for. So before you take chemical abortion pills, you need an in-person visit with a doctor. And this bill would preserve that in our state. And also after. Yeah, and they were saying, you know, yesterday some of the most compelling testimony was that out of a thousand of people that might receive these, there will be twenty people who have a problem that could be life, you know, endangering or hospitalization or death, and that's just not okay. Right, and one young woman that testified, Mackenzie, um, we've heard from her before. Uh, if this, if the pill were allowed to be sent through the mail. Um, she would have been in a really serious situation because she took the abortion pill. She had some complications. It was not complete. She had to go back, and she wound up suffering seven infections. So that shows the need for the follow-up appointment with the doctor. If she had not had that follow-up appointment, uh, who knows what would have happened. Especially given the fact that I think most young women who are seeking this um, are afraid and they're not going to be full disclosure with their family for so many reasons or friends. They're, you know, it's a private decision. And if they're left all alone, uh, there is absolutely no one who knows that they need to reach out and help them. And from our point of view, if they go in and they have at least the in-person visit with a the doctor, they have, you know, whether it's counseling or not, it wouldn't be counseling like what we're talking about. But at least they have an in-person physical exam. And they're at least offered the opportunity to know more about other options. And that's critical because we know that some of those women, when they have an ultrasound exam, they know how far along they're in their pregnancy, they start to think about they're going to choose life instead of abortion. And even Mackenzie even testified to that, too, yesterday, that she was not asked or she was not notified at Planned Parenthood of other options. So that's just not happening. No, it's not, despite what they say. This bill does other things, too. Some of the things we haven't talked about in the past. I mean, for one, it um, it makes sure that the remains of um, aborted preborn babies are treated with dignity. And they're either cremated or they are buried. The bill does some other things. So. That's right. You know, as part of the informed consent process, the woman having a surgical abortion, how do you want the remains disposed of? 
and it also it tightens our laws. We've been fairly good at not having taxpayer funding of abortion, but it tightens our laws to say no commercial transactions, no contracts by a, a governmental body with abortion providers. So it, it it just tightens things where they need to be tightened and, and try to get us as, as far down the road. But also it establishes a very important preamble, what's called a preamble. And it says that the, in, in, the laws of this state are to be interpreted in valuing life, valuing the life of the preborn child, of the unborn child. And it, it copies a Missouri preamble that is in effect today. It hasn't been uh, challenged. It's not conferring personhood. But it's, it's still acknowledging that the unborn child is worthy of the rights that the law would accord um, within what are the current constitutional decisions. And that seems to be where there's the most pushback, at least from committee yesterday and, and then when it was over in the Senate. There's a lot of resistance to this bill. Yeah, and because the abortion industry cannot consider anything that might even be common ground or even have merit. They're not going to consider women's health and safety. They're not going to acknowledge that that maybe abortions are happening simply because this child is going to be less than what they consider human, as they would define human. Uh, and they're just it, it really reveals the underbelly of the abortion industry that we know is there. And it's just if, if people want to look and see it, it's very easy to see. Now, piggyback on that, given that upwards of 60 percent of children, preborn children, um, with Down syndrome are aborted in America today. And we know that they go on to live very productive lives and can become, you know, great citizens in our country and, and do good things. And they've also been key in some research for Alzheimer's and things like that because they're such unique people. So they have value and purpose. And um, I just, you know, that's just something that is worth noting. For sure. And so big picture, looking big picture, if this bill passes the way it is, what does it mean for, uh, you know, the, the pro-life effort overall? Well, it means that Arizona continues its its history or its legacy of being a pro-life state. It, it continues that we have policymakers, we have a governor, we have legislators like Senator Nancy Bartow that are committed to doing all they can in the current legal and policy environment to protect preborn children and provide for their mother's health and safety. And so it moves us forward, and, and that's what we want to do at Center for Arizona Policy is keep looking for how do we continue to move the bill forward, I mean, move, move the ball forward in a sense, to where we're, we're looking at for how do we restore a sanctity of human life and, and really make abortion unthinkable, to use that term. That, and this is a, a piece of that incremental puzzle to continue to get where we want to go. Okay. Um, all right. Well, so is there anything else on that that we should talk about before we switch gears? Because we're switching completely <laughs> in the other direction here. Just that uh, we need to continue to pray and work uh, towards, uh, we've still got work to do on it. Um, not sit on our laurels, like my dad would tell me, and um, trudge forward. We can't we cannot let up until we, we get this accomplished. And when you get an action alert from Center for Arizona Policy, respond. <laughs> let yes, your, let your let your two House members know where you stand on this bill. They really do pay attention to that. They do. Yeah. yeah. And some of them expect it. I've heard people go, I didn't get it. <laughs> I think you did. Look again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So switching gears, uh, there have been uh, some changes, some recent developments with the uh, IRC regarding the Independent <laughs> Redistricting Committee. Lisa, it's kind of your, your ball time. Tell us a little bit about that, but I just want to say I know that I'm not alone. And before I got into policy at all, whenever I would hear that they were going to redraw the district, I just immediately thought, 
shenanigans. There's shenanigans <laughs> going on because why are they changing things? But I, I know it's not. A, well, they a used bit. to say that, and that's why they went to this system of creating the IRC. The legislature used to take care of this, but back in 2000, um, other states do it another way. But in Arizona, in 2001, was the first IRC. So the Independent Redistricting Commission is what it is. And um, basically, every 10 years, we go through a census, and so things shift and things change, and uh, our state has grown exponentially um, in a lot of ways, and um, it's just a reaccounting of the numbers of who lives in each legislative uh, district, both on the congressional side and on the state legislative side, and how those districts should be drawn to represent the most people within that any given district. And, of course, as you can imagine, it can get a little uh, contentious uh, because it's made up of two members of um, one side of the House and two members of another side of the House. And then they um, are chosen by their respective leadership. And then the four choose an independent chair uh, to try and be somewhat of an arbitrator uh, between them. Um, So that's basically uh, her job, and she was chosen a couple of months ago. And then yesterday they got together after a very long day, um, eight hours, taking notes. Um, <laughs> Thank on, you. <laughs> um, and they chose a, an executive director who is a paid position. So I must say that those people are, these are volunteer positions. And then they hire staff that is paid to get this done because it's definitely not an easy feat. They are redrawing the maps of Arizona. Um, the only real highlight or, or insight we have right now is we think Arizona is going to pick up another congressional seat. So that will give us more representation in D.C. And um, But as far as the legislative uh, districts go, we're not so sure. Well, I was reading um, that some of the other states that were losing people, oh, I can't remember them all, but I was like in California, New York, you know, some bigger states were actually losing. They were expecting to lose seats. Right. So it's interesting to see which states are gaining and which are losing. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, and, and it's true. I, You know, um, it, there are so many uh, parts of the state that a lot of people don't think of because we live in these very urban areas. But mm-hmm. most states, even California, has very rural areas. And, um, you know, that might bode well for those folks, in their opinion, because more people are moving out of the urban areas, and and therefore they get a little bit more equal, if you know what I mean, in the drawing process. So, when is this all going to be done? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, is that the question? <laughs> well, that's one of the things I think that's the biggest concern is that the Census Bureau has not released the data, and so by in most. Every 10 years, you would already have the data um, because they've got to know how many citizens they've got because they have to try to portion those congressional districts with close to the equal number of voters per district or or population. I shouldn't say just voters. And so now they're saying, what, September or even later? Yes. And um, that puts us in an interesting position because, as you know, uh, maybe you don't know, um, candidates have to file for um, to rerun or to run for the first time um, at, during, you know, it's specified when they have to do that. And so there's going to be an issue there. I'm not quite sure how 
um, that's going to be handled. I know that um, Rep- Mr. Mesnard has a bill that is trying to remedy that to a certain extent, just in case. Uh, but nobody's totally sure yet um, how that's going to work. Well, and they're talking about having the maps, what, in January? And then usually when they have the maps, then they have hearings throughout the state to see whether it's it's meeting the requirements of, of redistricting. And so that's January. And the filing deadline for candidates, I believe, is in April. So you have, when you think of a new congressional district and you think of all these politicians that want to run for, do I run for Congress or do I stay in the state legislature or do I go for statewide office? But I don't know where the lines are. (laughs) And so it is a, it's a, the free for all has already begun. And it's structured. There are three or six tenets in the constitution that they have to stick to. But the one that causes the most issue is number six because it can be, um, and it's about competitiveness. And it's the only one of those that talks about competitiveness. The other ones talk about population, talk about specific groups of people, talks about um, contiguous um, districts and things of that nature that are pretty practical. Um, But that sixth one is, is the one that hiccups. And in the last cycle in 2011, there were, I believe there were five lawsuits, two of which went to the federal courts. So this isn't, you know, um, as easy as it might sound, (laughs) just discussing it, um, because, you know, it's important. So it needs to be scrutinized and people look at it very carefully, which also can delay that process potentially. And why does it matter? It impacts the state for the next 10 years. It impacts when we talk about in the current state legislature having 31 and 16 Republicans, 31 in the House, 16 in the Senate. A lot of that, at least, is because of how the districts were drawn in 2011 and what we've been living with for this last decade. So that's why it matters. It can really make a difference on whether we get a more conservative or more liberal legislature. So a lot of people in Arizona are going to have potentially have a different uh, representation, right? They could have different lawmakers. Some yes. will, sure, yeah. because the lines will be drawn a little bit differently um, and can, you know, where it ends now, it can, you know, include a portion of, of that general area that was so in they a live on district the edge before. somewhere. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and the best example of what happened in 2011 was a congressional district basically being drawn for Kirsten Cinema. And if you were to look at the congressional map for Arizona and you see how it threads through Tempe and central the central part of Phoenix, it was drawn specifically to help someone like Kirsten Cinema get elected to Congress. And now she's in the U.S. Senate, of course. Which mm. is why we were in court. <laughs> Not just that issue, but that's that's how important this is yeah, because so the consequences. Are- um, yeah, because then what happens a lot of times is gerrymandering, you know, and it takes many, many cycles to change anything or to get new representation, whether you like them or not. So um, it, it has a huge impact. All right. Well, keep us posted. I'll, I'll try. <laughs> so uh, some of the biggest news nationally is the passage of the Equality Act out of the House, now going to the Senate. Uh, we often talk about the effects of passing local SOGI laws, sexual orientation, gender identity laws, fairness for all, and you know laws like that, how they threaten women's privacy and safety, uh, women's sports, and of course, religious freedom. Uh, but the Equality Act stands out as really the most crushing to religious freedom. Uh, for one, uh, because it exempts itself from RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So it, it looks like there's really no protections for religious freedom. Well, and Cindy, when you mentioned the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that is the law that helped protect Hobby Lobby 
And if listeners remember, Hobby Lobby won at the U.S. Supreme Court on whether they had to provide contraceptive drugs to their employees under what the Obamacare, I believe. And so this is why it is so critical. There is so much in the Equality Act. You know, we talk about how the left wants to put people like us in our silos, is, is what I usually say. That how And this bill vividly shows the silo that we would be put in, that when we talk about wanting to be free to live and work according to our faith, that we certainly believe as believers that we're to go into all the world. Well, this bill would, from a legal policy perspective, would say, sorry, Christians, you can't go into all the world with your faith. You're to stay in the four walls of your church, to stay in the four walls of your home, that that's really what this would do in many, many ways. It's so unorganic, you know. Um, It's legislating morality, in my view. Um, There's so many more compassionate or empathetic ways we can do that. Um, The way the Lord told us to go out into the world, um, the thing I think about on this one is I've never looked into anybody's face that God didn't love. And there are ways we can handle these issues without legislating it because then it's rigid. Then it just perpetually um, creates more anger and more problems because we go about it this way. And I don't know, when it comes to religious liberty, uh, this this is frightening to me. Yeah, it really is. Al Mohler uh, wrote a really good piece um, for the public discourse. Um, and he's, he paints a pretty bleak picture. Um, and he says that the sponsor admitted that the government would determine if a religious organization was acting according to its convictions or if it was discriminating based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And that, that's frightening well, to yeah, have the government pitting, decide what your faith is. It's pitting religious freedom against mm-hmm. discrimination and, in effect, discriminating against religion. So it, it's just a vicious cycle that, that – um, is just trying. They're just trying to completely redefine it. And what we've always said is that our civil rights laws were designed to be a shield from unjust discrimination. And what these laws do is that they're used as a sword to go after people of faith, to go after people who have maybe a historic understanding of marriage, certainly a historic, well, a scientific understanding of biology, we could say it that well sure. as well. I think, you know, the religious freedom issue is, is the most um, dangerous part and the one of concern. But even... When you look at the act, this is what stood out to me. It redefines sex to be no reference to biological distinctions between male and female. So sex is defined in the law as stereotypes. So stop and think about the stereotypes, sex characteristics, pregnancy, sexual desires, self-perception. So basically it would be unlawful. You, you wouldn't Abortion would be enshrined in this law as well uh, because you can't discriminate against a woman simply because she's a woman by saying, no, you can't have an abortion. And that's often kind of hard to grasp how that really what – that, what that really, is that really what it means? But that's exactly what they're trying to do with the Equality Act is off, you know, guarantee women have an abortion. It's they're right, law. rewriting the dictionary here. Exactly. Yeah. Great, great, great way to put yeah, it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so fast. It's moving so swiftly. You think uh, Obergefell in 2015. And uh, even during that um, that trial, I know the, the whole idea of religious freedom and how it will pit the two together or against each other uh, came up. And, and, you know, what is this going to do uh, to religious freedom? And, uh, wow, it's been no time at all. And we see how, how quickly it has changed. Well, and it'll change, you know, whether parents have the right to raise their children as they believe God calls them to, to train up a child in the way they should go. Equality Act would say parents, no, you don't have that right. Mm-hmm. That if your child wants to, you know, if you're in a child custody dispute and you, you don't, do not want your child to have puberty blockers or whatever it might be, um, sorry, you know, the, the parent who wants to follow that belief, you're out of luck. 
because um, it's not the, the norm. Yeah, and the I think of um, Christian schools, Christian public or private schools, even our organization. It's going to be the government that decides whether or not you can teach what you want to teach, or you can hire people based on your religious beliefs. It's frightening. It's the burden of proof is put on us as it's supposed to be the other way around. And so that that's going to be very difficult to navigate if it happens. And lots of litigation. Yeah. And Kathy, you mentioned earlier the fairness for all. That um, I know uh, early on that was supposed to be the answer to all of this. But tell us a little bit about that. You know more about that. <laughs> but let me just say when someone when tells you, well, the Equality Act goes too far, but fairness for all is a good compromise. No. Fairness for all is Equality Act light. That's how I've heard it described, and it's exactly that, that it may in some ways address the abortion part of the Equality Act, but it really, uh, what it does is it still um, does not protect religious freedom. It still does, it still does not, um, it still would allow biological males to participate on female sports teams. I mean, so fairness for all is not an answer um, either. And so don't just, both of them are, are ones that have very similar outcomes and one equality, I mean, fairness for all is not any better than equality act. Okay. And right now, so it's going to go to the Senate. It'll be closer, right? We've got 50-50, but, um, and it's got to... We're just hoping the filibuster It's the filibuster, stays. right. Yeah, so. yeah, it's yeah. on a fine line right now. Yeah, I've not been a fan of the filibuster rule, but it's what's going to save us right now. If we can just hang on till the 2022 elections and flip the Senate to be more um, conservative... Right now, you know, everyone thinks it depends on our own Kirsten Cinema, Senator Cinema, and Senator Manchin from West Virginia. Those two have been very strong that they do not support changing the filibuster rule. Uh, so let's um, continue to pray and hope that, that they stick to their guns on that. Because that's the only way this could pass the Senate because it yeah, needs it, sixty votes. Yeah, if they yeah, the if they change it, yeah, if they change it that fifty one votes. Well, if they they've got the fifty Democrats and certainly Kirsten Sinema is a sponsor, a co sponsor, a strong sponsor of the Equality Act. So if somehow they change the filibuster rule where they don't need the sixty vote threshold, then there will be the fifty Democrat votes plus Kamala Harris as vice president with fifty one votes to pass the Equality Act. So that that's the danger certainly. Well, I hate to stop on that <laughs> downer, but we have to wrap it up. We'll have plenty of time to talk about all this stuff at another time. So thank you, ladies. Thank, thank you. you. And we're not without hope. So no, never. you know who we look to. Thank you for listening to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and give a review on any podcast platform you use. For more information, visit azpolicy.org.